God uses different ways of drawing us to himself, and he kind of does that, never against our own will. God never draws us to himself against our own will. He never forces us. But he does try to motivate us. And he has different means of motivation. And one of the means that he uses is the means of of helping us to fear hell. The other way is to help us to really be drawn into the heavenly reality and the relational reality. I think in today's scriptures we have one instance of one and one instance of the other. So Jesus might come off a little scary in today's gospel. He uses these contemporary, in his day, these events that had happened that were very kind of graphic and violent to describe what will happen to his audience that he was speaking to and us likewise, to you. This is going to happen to you if you do not repent immediately. And then he gives the parable where he says, if this tree, this fig tree, is not producing fruit very quickly, I'm just going to chop it down. And Jesus often talks about hell and the reality of eternal death and how we should fear it. And, and he does this as a means of motivating us so that we take him seriously and that we take these realities seriously. Now, it's really not the optimal way for us to, to kind of move towards God is just from a fear of hell. It's kind of, you might say, a little bit less spiritually mature. But it's understandable. And it, it's still a good motivation, I think. I, was, I spent a few days, took a few days off last week, and I spent them with my sister and, and her three children. So she has a four-year-old, she has a two-and-a-half, three-year-old, and she has a one-year-old. So she's got her hands full. And it was really, really, really nice to be with them for like three full days. And one of the nice reasons about being with them and with the kids for three straight days nonstop is that I really got to observe and appreciate really my, my sister and my brother-in-law's parenting and just kind of see how they, they deal with the regular. And as we all know, four-year-olds are very much prone to fits of rage. And I would say the amount of meltdowns, the average amount of meltdowns for my nephew Joseph was about two per day, two kind of major meltdowns a day. And it was interesting seeing how my my brother-in-law, Josh, dealt with the meltdowns. And what I noticed as I was paying attention, is that there's kind of like a series of steps that he takes. He's got like a routine for the, for the meltdowns. First step, of course, is to, to kind of reason with the child, right? 
well, you know, are you sure you don't want to go to sleep right now? And, and of course, my nephew, just in a full screaming voice, no, I don't want to go to bed right now. He's just crying and angry and screaming and upset and flailing on the ground as though he were possessed by some unclean spirit. <laughs> no. And Josh will kind of reason with him, okay, but you know, if you don't go to sleep now, you're not going to be able to have a good day tomorrow. You're going to be tired all day, and you're not going to get to have fun with your Uncle John. And it's just whatever kind of reasonable way that he can try to connect with him. And so if that first stage doesn't work, which it often does not, four-year-olds are not the most rational creatures, and they don't, they don't really logically play it out too well. If that one doesn't work, then it's the fear of punishment, of isolation. So the, the timeout, right? You will, you will go into timeout in your room. You will be, you'll be isolated from the family unit by yourself. And you won't get to participate in whatever fun we're doing today or maybe tomorrow because you're doing this. And then the final step, of course, if, if there's still no repentance, is you will, you will have to feel the ramifications of your actions. And you will, you will live in this isolation for five minutes, you know, which is an eternity, of course, for a child. And I think Jesus does a very similar thing here. When he talks about repentance and he wants to put, truly, the fear of hell in us. Hell is ultimate isolation. It's the ultimate depersonalization. It's the ultimate loneliness, depression, existential anxiety. It's us being isolated from ourselves, us being isolated because of our selfishness from others, us being isolated from God, the rest of God's creation, and us being isolated from God. It's just a total and complete disastrous state of, of being. It's, it's anti-relational. It's anti-personal. And so on the flip side, of course, heaven is very personal. That's what heaven is. It's a communion of saints. We say it's the beatific vision. It's the greatest good because we actually get to be with God fully and we can see him. And it's amazing to be with God. Moses gets a taste of this. Of course, hopefully, as human beings, if we grow, as we start to enter adolescence and then pass adolescence, we start to hopefully not see our parents and the way that our parents parent hopefully starts to change and there starts to be more of a, a mutual respect, let's say, where the child, as they've matured and, and progressed, has become less self-centered and, less, and more self-motivated to be in good relationship with the parent, right? So out of love, I'm not going to do this because this would really be a disrespectful action to my mom or my dad. It would really hurt their hearts. You know, at a certain point, a lot of us as children, we fear the words, you've disappointed me, 
right? More than the anger that the parent brings down. Because we really value that relationship. And we don't want to be out of communion with those people. And so here in this first reading that we have from the book of Exodus, God draws Moses into his, the, the, the majesty and the awe of his personhood. And so just kind of using another image, Moses coming in contact with God in the, in the burning bush, Moses falls in love with God. Maybe for the first time. It seems as though the scriptures seem to point out that this is, this is Moses' falling in love with God. And everything from this point forward changes for Moses. Moses is a fairly rough character up until this point. Moses had murdered someone. That's why he had to flee Egypt. He had grown up with kind of like a silver spoon, we might say. Life. He was very spoiled, bratty. And then he eventually, just in rage and lack of self-discipline, just gets in a fight and kills someone. And he goes out to the desert, and he sees the, this bush that appears as though it's, it's burning, but it's not being consumed. And he finds that this is God speaking directly to him. And God reveals himself to Mo- Moses. I am who am. I am the essence of and the foundation of reality. And so Moses falls in love with the person of God. And then this, what this this does when Moses falls in love with God is allows Moses, because of the relationship that he has with God, to be ironed out And when he's going through all the difficulties that he's going through through the rest of his life, and he doesn't doesn't want to be with these people of Israel, they're constantly complaining, Moses doesn't want to do any of the stuff that he's called to do. But his motivation is love of God. Moses has fallen in love with God, and that motivates him, so to speak, to repent. It motivates him to move towards God and it motivates his behaviors. So it's, so it's less of a moralistic movement towards God. And it's more a love of the person, which is more like what, an, what a really good marriage looks like, right? We do these things for our spouse on a regular basis out of love because we've committed ourselves to them completely and what that starts to do to us as as time goes on in in a mature marriage is I start to become less egocentric and more oriented towards the other and there's a kind of repentance that happens I stop seeing myself as the center and I start seeing this person and then eventually my children as the center of my life. And that motivates me. That's authentically, that's like authentic love of God will do as well. And so we don't look at these laws of the church 
that Jesus gives us, that the church gives us. And these, these let's say, these, these pitfalls that we could have as these impersonal, stale, out-of-touch rules, we see them as impediments to the relationship. And so if we're in a habit of a particular sin, that will impair my relationship with God. It will, it, will, it will make it so it's very hard to have an intimate, loving, healthy, fruitful relationship with God. If some particular area of my life is out of whack with what God has asked, just like it would in a marriage. If I have some kind of addiction, it's going to pull me away from my wife and my kids. It's going to hurt me. It's going to hurt them. It's selfish. It's more isolating. But God draws us into this love of him as a person. And he wants our motivation to repent and to look at these different aspects of our lives that are out of step with what a good relationship with God gives us. Just out of pure love for us. Jesus, we ask you to help us to repent and take seriously your words today. Help us to examine honestly all the aspects of our lives and anything that's just out of whack with how you're asking us to live. Any pattern of habitual sin that we ourselves rationalize. Anything that the church has prescribed as helpful and relationally and that will help us to improve our relationship with you, we, we ask you to help us to just move in that direction. Lead us into communion with you and communion with everyone that you've given us in our lives. Help us to be less egocentric and more other-centric. We ask this all through Christ our Lord. Amen. And let us take a few moments in silent prayer to just speak with the Lord in our hearts.